to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. God who's faithful to act loyally for our sake because God has set his love upon us. And this is this major theme that runs throughout the entire Bible, that God is constantly acting in love toward his people, pursuing them, longing to redeem them and restore them. And we saw this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the like 14 seconds after Adam and Eve have sinned, God already is laying out the plans for our redemption. He's saying, I'm going to send someone one day who will crush Satan's sin and death once and for all. God displays his covenant love. And so the entire book of Genesis is is God preserving a people who's going to bless all people. And God does this not because this group of characters has it all together. Not because all of these people eventually become more moral or or they get it better than their dad did or their granddad did. He does it because of his steadfast love towards them. And we see this theme running throughout the Old Testament where God is preserving a group of sinful people so that he can send a sinless person to deal with our sin. And so Psalm 136, we see God's steadfast love repeated 26 times in one psalm, telling us that God has a steadfast, loyal plan to rescue his people. But also the idea of God remembering in chapter 8, verse 1, is not just his loyal love, but his timely intervention. God moved toward Noah, and he remembered Noah because he had never forgotten him. Reverend Childs said that God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object of his memory. God has had not forgotten Noah, and God has not forgotten us, and he moved toward us through sending us his own son. So God's loyal love, his, his faithful love to us is, is shown to us most fully in Jesus. And another way to say this is that God is faithful to his covenant. Another way to translate that word said is covenant faithfulness. That he lovingly pursued us and came after us because he set his love upon us and he made a promise to us that he would save us. This covenant was to lead to their salvation, and the covenant that God has made with us through Jesus Christ is for our salvation because we are a people who need rescue, just like the people in Noah's day. That God is committed to his people, and he does everything necessary to bring us to himself. So let's this morning look at what this covenant with Noah means for us. It is the template for other covenants to come. God does this because he's gracious. He initiates this, not because we deserve it. We're still sinful. He does this because his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance and point us to this greater hope that we have in Jesus. So let's look at what this covenant with Noah means for how we can live, what covenants actually do. The first idea this morning is that covenant allows us to rest while we wait. It allows us to rest While we wait, we left off last week in chapter seven. We saw that the flood had been raging for 40 days and 40 nights. They get into the ark, the waters rise, 40 days, 40 nights, and that the water prevailed on the earth for 150 days. And as we get into chapter eight, we begin to see that the waters start to recede. Chapter uh, eight, verse two, it says, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens were restored. And the water receded, Uh, verse 3, from the earth continually. 
The Lord, at the end of verse 1, it said the Lord had made a wind to blow. The word for wind is the same word used for spirit back in Genesis chapter 1, where it said that the spirit hovered over the water at creation. This is a picture of God recreating the world. He's washed the world clean, and now he is restoring it. He's pushing the water away. And we see this sort of symmetry. It says that at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. So the waters prevailed for 150 days, and at the end of 150 days, the waters were gone. There's a symmetry there. God is actively causing this to happen, and he's working over this long period of time, about a year and 11 days, he's working while Noah waits. And we see here that the, the, that the ark comes to rest. It said the water, uh, sorry, sorry, verse 4, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So God's working, the, mountain, the, the ark comes to rest on the mountain, probably somewhere in Turkey, they drifted north, and they were sitting there waiting for what God is going to do. So you got to ask yourself, what were they doing for nearly a year? They're sitting in the ark trying to figure out, what do we do? We're here. Did anybody remember the Netflix login? Did somebody bring a deck of cards? Like, what are we, what are we going to do here for the next year? And I really believe that they were relearning to do what God had created them to do. They, they were taking their time to, to relearn how God had shaped them, the original design that he had given people, because waiting in God reframes that for us. What was the original creation mandate that God had given Adam and Eve? He said, I want you to cultivate the earth. I want you to go forth and be fruitful and multiply. And so what are they, who are they hanging out with for basically a year? They got a bunch of animals hanging out with them on the ark. What was one of the first things that God did in the story with Adam? He led all of these animals before him. And what did Adam do? He named them, which is a sign of him having authority over them and care for them. They're relearning what it looked like to care for creation. Adam and Eve were also gardeners. And we see a little bit later in chapter 9, which we'll cover next week, one of the first things that Adam does is he plants a vineyard. They're relearning what it means to fulfill their mission fulfill their mandate. And all that time they're spending with animals and they're becoming fond of these animals. They may have gone into the ark not liking them. It's like if you got a puppy kind of reluctantly, you eventually probably like the puppy, right? It's like, that's kind of what happens. They got this monkey. It's like, oh, Leonard, he always does that. You know, like they kind of, they're, they're figuring out how to love creation again. They, they seemingly grew to trust him a little bit because the dove in chapter eight, verse nine, returns to Noah as Noah sends him out and lands in his hand. So they seem to have been relearning what it meant to fulfill their purpose. But another thing we see that they were learning to do is they were learning to be creative. There were no distractions on the ark. There were no other people talking to them and distracting them and, and trying to pull them away from what God wanted for them. The ark comes to rest and it stops. And they've got to figure out how do we figure out whether we can get off the ark or not. It seems like we've stopped, but I don't know. We can open the door and there's a bunch of raging water. We, we may be in trouble. And so they begin to get resourceful. If you look at chapter uh, 8, verse 6, it says, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. So he sends forth one type of bird. That it says that it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. So he thinks, okay, let me send out this bird. That's pretty creative to figure out if we can get out of the ark or not. So he sends that one forth and realizes that that doesn't work. So he goes to plan B. He says, then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. So he sends forth another uh, animal or another bird that then comes back to him. But Verse 9, but the dove found no place to set her foot. 
and she returned to him on, uh, on the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waits another seven days. He goes, okay, let's try this again. Again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So he's thinking, oh, he's thinking, okay, this is, this is working. And you've seen the picture of, of, a, of a dove holding an olive branch in his mouth, this picture of peace. God has made peace with the earth, um, that the waters are beginning to recede. And so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth, verse 12, and then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. And so that, that stillness that Noah had sitting there on the ark, sitting there resting in literal salvation, gave him space to express, express trust in God in creative and new ways. He sees that the waters are receding, verse 13, and in the 601st year, in the first month, and the first day of the month, the waters were dried from um, off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And so he has to wait another two months before he knows that the ground is dry enough and then is able to step out in faith, believing and trusting in what God had done. The covenant was there to save them, to save Noah and his family. And what salvation does is it helps us as well relearn how to live for God while we wait for God. It, it teaches us how to, to, uh, to live in a particular way that pleases God. And it's the same for us in Christ, because why doesn't God just zap us up to heaven the moment that we trust him in faith? Why is it that the moment you trust Jesus, you don't just leave the earth, right? Because we know we've been saved from our sins, but we also live in a really messed up and broken world. There's a lot of really awful stuff that happens here. And even after you become a Christian, it doesn't shield you from bad things happening to you. So why doesn't God just zap us up? be a lot easier, but what God is doing is he's teaching us how to live in light of a new kingdom. He's teaching us to live in light of a new creation and preparing us for the day that we will be with Jesus forever. And while we wait, God is shaping us and sanctifying us to live out what he has called us to do. And so how does this play out? We are relearning how to live relationally. What is the church? The church is God's family, and this is the place where a bunch of Sinners who need Jesus come together and really try to refigure out what it means to love each other. From across backgrounds and temperaments and walks of life, we come together and we get to rediscover what it looks like to be a new people who love and serve one another and not just look to our own interest. It's how we view creation. God wants us to view creation in a healthy way, that we don't use it and abuse it and strip it, but we do so in a way that we cultivate creation. It changes the, our value about work. But one thing that's also happening as we rest in God is it allows us to listen to God. When we rest in the salvation that we've received through Jesus, it allows us to listen to God and what God wants from us. But honestly, that's really hard because when was the last time you sat still? When was the last time you really felt like you could be before God in such a way that you had nothing to do? In a way that there was nothing on the back end that you were starting to let your mind drift toward? You ever like open your Bible or begin to pray and you start thinking about that one thing you hadn't thought about in like four months? We, we have a really difficult time sitting still because we don't like to be bored. My daughter Lily wrote this article a couple of years ago for uh, Teens in Print, which is a, an online magazine for teen writers about boredom. And she talks about how we are addicted to, uh, to, to serotonin and these things that make us, we kind of get this hit off of it. She says we actually need to be bored because boredom sparks creativity. 
You ever been sitting there and you're not really thinking about anything? You don't feel busy. You don't feel rushed. And you just you have this idea, this great idea that pops up. For me, it's usually like making cookies or something, which is always a great idea. We have this something. Creativity is sparked by sitting still. And I believe we have no imagination for what God wants to do or could do through us or in us because we are so unable to sit still. Because we're so inwardly focused and we clutter our lives in such a way that all we see is our schedules. All we see is our lives and our needs. And here's the deal. If you you can't sit still, you can't think about anybody else. If you can't look away from yourself, you're never going to consider how God might want to use your money or your gifts or your time or your talents to, to bless someone else. But also what stillness does is it allows us to be sensitive to the Spirit. Who might God be calling you to love? Who might God be calling you to serve? Who might, how might He be calling you to go or to stay and dig in and do the hard thing with people? See, Noah was secure and safe with God and the salvation that he had received. So he knew that he could trust God in these ways. So what if you believe that Jesus really took care of your past? What if you believe that those sins that you committed in the past have been dealt with through the blood of Christ, and because of that, you don't have to rehearse that mistake over and over and over again? What if you believe that your future in Christ was so secure that you didn't have to worry about that deadline or what program you would enter in or what tomorrow might bring, that you could be present with God and be present with others in such a way that you could see the ways that God might use you? What might you do? What might change? What might you risk? Who might you go to and share the gospel with? Secondly, the covenant enables repentance. What's the first thing that Noah does? Noah, in verse 20, he built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. This is the first time in the Bible that an altar is described. And if you were the first readers of this or the first hearers of this story, this would have been really familiar because the way that you made things right with God was to make a sacrifice. And we see in verse 21 that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike uh, down, uh, again, strike down every living creature as I have done. This aroma pleases God in such a way that it turns back the wrath of God because it's an act of worship. And we see God's grace here because God says he'll never strike them down again. Why? It says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, that should sound familiar if you've been with us in Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. What was the reason that God brought the flood? For the intentions of man's heart were evil continually, all the time. So here, the word for, it doesn't mean that God's saying he made a mistake. He's saying, well, I'm doing this because, you know, they just were never going to get it together in the first place. The word for there doesn't mean that this is the cause, but it needs to be read more like even though. Even though they're still sinners deep down in their hearts, I'm going to be gracious. Even though they are still sinners, I'm going to be gracious. The problem is our hearts. There was no just starting over with better people that was going to make this right. There's no moving into a better neighborhood that's going to make things better or the right politicians winning at the midterm that's going to make everything better. Even though they were still sinful people, we're going to make, he's going to make a way to deal with sin, and that is through sacrifice. And so Noah makes a sacrifice for all the sins that have been committed prior to the flood, and this is the pattern for worship. 
We bring our best to God. It's a repentance is truly worship because we're turning away from worshiping one thing to turning toward God who deserves our worship alone. It involves rightly aligning ourselves to God and His priorities. And this is why Jesus, when He came, when the first words out of His mouth were, repent and believe the gospel. Why? For the kingdom of God is here. It's putting ourselves in a place where we turn away from allegiance to one thing and turn ourselves towards Christ. Now, when we repent and believe the gospel, this is not something we do. um, You're not getting saved again. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you, you are saved. That cannot be taken away from you. But repentance and belief is what Martin Luther says, the entire life of the believer. Everything we do is repentance and belief. It's daily choosing to turn away from our sins and our selfishness towards Christ alone. The third idea is that covenant restores our creation blessing. Another way we've described Noah as the new Adam, another way this happens is that God reestablishes this mandate. And in chapter 8, verse 17, 9, verse 1, and 9, Seven, we see the same words, to be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. The same mandate given to Adam and Eve. He said, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to be multiply. I want you to go into all the earth and do this and fill the earth. But we notice some differences when we look at chapter 9 and the way that this mandate was given to Adam and Eve prior to sin entering the world and the way that it's given to Noah after sin has entered the world and after the flood. There's blessing, but there are some limitations. We see in chapter 8, verse 21, there's no more curse on the ground. You know, there have been 10 generations of famine and toil, and God restores fruitfulness, but he does so through seasons. Chapter 8, verse 22, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. These seasons of planting and reaping and rest for the land. I believe that prior to the fall, there would just have been boundless fruitfulness. There'd never been a day you couldn't go out there and get grapes or strawberries. I think it just, nothing would have ever been out of season. If you ever gone to stop and shop and bought an orange in December, you're taking your life into your own hands. That's not a fresh orange. I don't think that would have been the world we lived in. So there's some limitations to the blessing. But also, God takes into account human wickedness. Now, as I talk about how the, the, we're, still, we're still evil, says the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now you notice if you compare that to chapter 6, verse 5, the wording's a little different. Chapter 6, verse 5 is really describing unprecedented evil. This is what would happen if the human heart got to where it could, it could go. If, you, if, if God were to remove the restraints and you were to just do whatever your sinful heart wanted to do, that's what's being described. But what chapter 8, verse 21 is describing is your heart is still capable of that. The world may not reflect that at the moment, that unprecedented evil, but your heart's still capable of it. And so what God does is he puts some guardrails in in order to make sure that they don't go off the rails. Uh, We lived in Colorado for a little while, and we lived in a little mountain town, and sometimes the mudslides would take out entire roads, and so the road would be completely impassable. And once the road was restored, they were still dangerous. So they would, they would put guardrails on the side of the road to make sure you didn't go flying off the side of the mountain. It's a little bit like what God's law is. God's law is meant to restrict us and restrain us from, from pain and suffering. We see some of, these, some of these restrictions God puts in place. Chapter 9, verse 2, it says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. So before, where I believe there was probably no fear, there now tends to be fear. There's a fearfulness because I believe that the, and the, the evil and the violence that was occurring was not just for people. I think people were actually probably abusing and killing animals kind of in a wanton kind of way. 
He said, chapter 9, verse 3, you can still eat them. Every moving thing shall, uh, that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I, I give you everything. But then verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. Saying that there needs to be some restriction here. There needs to be some way that you're not just killing life in a meaningless way. And that this particularly applies to the way that you view people. Chapter 9, verse 5, and your, for your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. God puts a law in place because of the condition of the human heart. He makes this clear because life is valuable. Go all the way back to Cain and Abel. What happened? Did anyone need to tell Cain that killing his brother was wrong? No. God created both Cain and Abel in the image of God in such a way that they should have known they were valuable. Cain should have known that his brother, because he was made by God, had value. No one needed to tell him that. He knew it, he saw it, but yet he denied it. And so it's almost like God is saying, let me spell this out for you. Let me give you this warning and this restriction to protect life. Because what does Galatians chapter 3 says is that why did God add the law? Because of transgressions. What the law does is it both exposes our sin and attempts to restrain it. Now, some personalities in this room, I'm not going to say who, it's when you and God, um, if somebody tells you to not do something, you want to do it, right? Anybody have that personality? You don't have to raise your hand. Keep it to yourself. If I, right now, if I were to say, don't look at your phone, some of you like, immediately felt like just this involuntary reaction to reach for your pocket or for your purse. We don't want to do what people tell us to do. And so in this way, the law exposes us. And this is why the covenant comes with, with restrictions, and it's what John Calvin said. He said that the law has three uses. It, it shows us how fall, far we fall short. It shows us that we're sinners. It also shows us that we need a Savior and what it means to please God, but also the third way is it restrains human evil. By marking out that killing people and taking things from people and, and all these things are evil and wrong, it's actually showing us the sinfulness of our hearts, but it's also intended to restrain evil. So all the commands that God gives us are not arbitrary. They're, they're not things that are just kind of God making up rules. They're meant to protect people because why does God care who we sleep with? Why does God care about how we treat the poor? Why does God care about uh, how we use our money? Or why does he care about the unborn? Why does he care about the oppressed? Why does he care about any of these things? Because life is precious. He wants to bless us. He knows that, that living however we want to live will ultimately lead to destruction. And it's impossible to love others and do whatever you want to do. And so these covenantal restrictions are meant to combat the same thing that happened with Adam and Eve where they were trying to define evil and good on their own. But what if these restrictions were a way of blessing? What if, and you see this in chapter 9, verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. That promise of blessing was given after the restriction. What if all the things that God calls us to do, all the things he calls us to lay down are actually meant for our good? The last way is that covenant is represented by a sign. It's actually pretty amazing. Noah's covenant is pretty amazing. We see it's a very broad covenant. Chapter 9, verse 15, I will remember my covenant is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. God removes the curse from everyone. 
This is common grace that whether you believe in Jesus or not, you can now earn a living or feed your family. You can create art or beauty. Um, You can enjoy the creation, but this kindness that God has given is not just for you to enjoy. It's meant to lead you to repentance. Chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 16, it's it's an everlasting covenant. It lasts forever. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. This shows the grace of God that God takes the initiative. God's the offended one. He doesn't come out of the flood and say, look, do you guys see what I just did? You you better get it together. I put your brother in timeout for eternity. Like, you better get it together. He doesn't say that. He makes initiative towards sinners. And it says he establishes his covenant, and you you grammar nerds are going to love this. This is your moment. He says establish in three different tenses. Chapter 9, verse 9, he says, um, I, I establish my covenant. This is an, an imminent future. Behold, this is happening. Chapter 9, verse 11, he says, I, I establish my covenant. This is present tense. And then chapter 9, verse 17, he says, I, uh, this is the covenant that I have established. This is a present perfect. What's being said there, as K.A. Matthew says, is God initiates, sustains, and completes the covenant. Meaning that God does everything necessary to save us. It's just like Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He's so committed to us to rescue us and redeem us. He does everything necessary and he does this and he gives us a sign. Says he puts his bow in the sky, a, a rainbow, which you might hope maybe be able to see today on a rainy day if the sun comes out. This rainbow and he says, I will never do this again. This shows his promised patience to not destroy us. And that bow is the word like a, like a battle bow, like a bow and arrow that God lays down his bow. And this is a sign of something greater to come. That God relented and the promise is still alive and the evil will be dealt with. And it points us to a better covenant. We see this in Jeremiah 31. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant, and I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God's covenant showed God's patient, loyal love. It pointed to the day the sin would be dealt with forever, and it shows us that Jesus is the better Noah who brings a better covenant. That he would not make a sacrifice that was not a sacrifice of animals, but he would make a sacrifice with his own life. That his blood would be shed and pay for our sins. That he was cut off so that you and I wouldn't be cut off. That he received judgment so that you and I could receive mercy. And so when we look at but God remembered in chapter 8 verse 1, this makes us maybe remember another but God in scripture. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Let's pray.